The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 53 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. If I had a dollar for every time Spider-Man comics use the word responsibility, I'd probably just use my millions to buy more forgotten dollar bin books from the 90s. I'm Adam. Usually with me at this time is my co-host, Michael Canetti, but if you were listening to the ongoing saga as presented in episode 52, he was being held by some secret government shadow agency at an undisclosed location. But we've gotten word that he's broken out, so we are going to keep you updated as we find out Michael's whereabouts. But in the meantime, we are lucky to have another special agent with us here, one who is not on the side of secrecy. Yes, it is another comics fan who knows a thing or two about the adventures of a certain webhead. So returning to the show with the strength of ten Rob eyelids, it's Bob Winters, a.k.a. the Amazing Bob Man. How you doing, Bob? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you were originally on the podcast about a year ago, filling in for me while I was in the middle of a move. You are chatting with Michael and your buddy Steven, and it sounded like you guys were having a great time. I felt like I was missing out. And so we had the Spider-Man heavy issue coming, and I said to myself, this is the perfect time to have you back well i couldn't agree more and i actually knew that michael wouldn't be here this evening i can only i can only come on the show when one of you is not here Seems to be how it works. Well, you know what? The thing is, a lot of times, you know, you want to get the word out about what you're doing. In the old days, you'd have to, like, print up a bunch of postcards and mail them out to all these people. You know, that junk mail we all love so much. But we're going to check out what's going on in the mail right now with Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. First up here, we have a letter that has a very interesting topic. This is a letter from Connie Watson of Bolivia, North Carolina, who says, Dear Wizard, I wanted to reply to the letter from Adam Frey of Southampton, Pennsylvania, that ran in issue number 48. Adam, you're absolutely right. Yes, I am. Oh, wait. Uh, Music really does enhance the enjoyment of reading. I always tune in to a good radio station while sitting in my favorite recliner and reading. My husband has asked me why I have to turn on music when I'm trying to read. I explain that it's a lot like having a musical score in a movie. You don't go to listen to the music, but when the monster is hiding in the basement, the scary music is what sets you on edge. I'm glad to know that I'm not alone. As for my preferences, I like to have some good old-fashioned rock and roll playing in the background when I'm reading. I also like to draw. For drawing, nothing gets my creative juices flowing like classical music. If you don't believe me, try listening to Ride of the Valkyries or Flight of the Bumblebee. My absolute favorite is drawing X-Men and ElfQuest characters while Pachabell's Canon in D is playing. So, this raises a very interesting question for both of us here, Bob. But why don't you read Wizard's response? So the response from the boys at Wizard said, 
We get lots of letters from people who wrote in to tell us their listening preferences when reading comics. The most popular bands? Looks like most people like to throw Nine Inch Nails, they're okay, in the CD player when reading. There was an almost equal amount who listened to, ugh, Hootie and the Blowfish. (laughs) There was also a surprising amount of support for, double uh, Ace of Bass. Many people agreed that Rush, yeah, the three-man army, was good background music. Connie was one of the few who mentioned classical music. I just noticed that when I'm writing magic words, I tend to listen to either the Gear Daddies or Ministry. Think that means anything? Hmm. Well, I've heard of one of those bands. (laughs) Gear Daddies. There's like some pretty intense choices here. Like, I don't know that I could do Nine Inch Nails. I also can't imagine listening to Ace of Bass, I don't think, while I'm reading my comics. But let me ask you this, Bob. For you, like, what is just in general your ideal comic book reading scenario? Do you like the silence? Do you like the music? Do you like to be in a room all to yourself? Like, how do you do it? So if I'm going to be listening to music, it's going to have to be something without lyrics, you know, because I don't I don't I don't want the distraction. So generally I'll be reading in a quiet room. And the ideal situation for me is to have a full stack of uh, consecutive issues piled up. That way, once I once I hit, you know, the end of that first one, I can just jump right into the next issue and just keep on rolling. Because if you take your time, a solid issue of any comic really will last you about 15 minutes, maybe 20. And so, you know, if I'm going to buckle down and like do some reading, I want to have probably an hour to 90 minutes of material to get through. So, yeah, nice stack and a, and a comfy couch or chair will will do the trick for me. So you prefer the quiet, though. So you, you don't generally throw in some earbuds or something and then throw on a playlist. No, I mean, if there's something that I'm trying to drown out in the background, ah. like if I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going for full immersion. So if there's anything that's going to pull me out of it, then I'll shut it off. But like, you know, if I get, if I got to put on some smooth jazz or something to, <laughs> to get me in the zone, like I'll do it. Kenny G and some Conan. It's a great combo. Yeah. Recontextualizes the barbarian adventure, you know, <laughs> put, puts a little romance on there. Yeah. I mean, for me, I definitely am someone who I love having music in the background. I have have since this era like in 1995 i was throwing on prodigy albums and i loved listening to prodigy <laughs> in the background while i'm reading like gen 13 or something like it just seemed to fit nowadays like i've mentioned this before on the podcast like the tron legacy soundtrack is great when you're talking oh, yeah. about you know lyrics like that works out really well and another album for whatever reason if it's a dark tale i like listening to my chemical romance the black parade oh yeah when we talk about a certain issue of a comic a little bit later in the show i'm gonna mention what song came on just perfectly timed while I was uh, reading it from that album. So, yeah, that's interesting. We'd love to hear from you guys out there who are listening. Like, what is your comic book soundtrack? Very curious to know. Or do you need to be in that quiet room? Or is it a padded room? Next, you know, this is actually the first of many top 10 lists that are going to be a part of this issue. And we have somebody named ZZ Strickland of Opelika, Alabama, which is, wow, ZZ from Opelika. Love it. But this is a really interesting explanation of their thought process. It says, Dear Wizard, the buzz over John Burns taking over Wonder Woman has ignited a burning question in my mind. Where does she rank in the DC Power lineup? There was a debate over this a few months back in her title's letter call with the 
consensus being that Wonder Woman is the second most powerful hero in the DC Universe, coming in right after Superman. I'm sorry, but I have to disagree. I would also argue the fact that Supes is the most powerful. Exactly what does it mean to be powerful? If you refer to number of powers and their intensity, Wonder Woman hardly ranks second. Neither does Superman. If you mean physical power, strength, speed, etc., again, both Wonder Woman and Supes fall short. Remember Lar Grand Valor? He is a Daxamite, and it has been documented that Daxamites are slightly more powerful than Kryptonians. Considering there are about a dozen heroes of the DC Universe that have enough power to level a city, I decided to do some research and make my own DC power ranking list. Here it goes. The 10 most powerful, strictly non-magical DC heroes. Number 1, Captain Adam. Number 2, Lar Grand Valor. Number 3, A, Superman. Number 3, B, they tied, I guess. <laughs> John Johns, the Martian Manhunter. 4 is Wonder Woman. 5 is Ray, the current version. 6 is Ray, the original. 7 is Damage. Number 8 is Green Lantern. Number 9 is Firestorm. And number 10 is Guy Gardner Warrior. Of course, this list may not be 100% accurate, but in my opinion, it's as close as possible. I welcome anyone to make a more accurate list. <laughs> Wow. I mean, that's a lot of research, honestly, that you had to do for that. I feel like ZZ Strickland is still waiting for someone <laughs> to make their list. <laughs> but uh, what did Wizard have to say about it there, Bob? Who boy. Sounds like you've got a lot of extra time on your hands down there, Z. But it's an interesting list nonetheless, probably as accurate as any, and guaranteed to generate discussion. It's also kind of funny how Guy Gardner, who was originally presented as a plain old Joe schoolteacher, has been revamped into a character who makes number 10 on your list. I noticed that you only ranked the DC good guys, so where would heavy-hitting baddies like Darkseid or Doomsday fall on your list if they were included? Write back and let us know. Yeah, so I mean, that's interesting that ZZ was not mentioning the all-powerful. And even Doomsday, yeah. Doomsday should be on that list, as we've seen. I will say, though, I, I think I do have to agree with the Captain Adam. Oh, yeah? That's a good call. Yeah, I mean, I like the Ray, personally. I'm a fan of the Ray, so I'm like, both Rays? Wow, that's pretty <laughs> cool. But what's funny to me, too, is they were speaking of the DC Power Rankings. So Scott Beatty, you know, a comic book writer of note who is a former Wizard staff member, when he was on the Wizard Files, he told us that he had literally just been allowed to create the official DC Power rankings for one of their books that had been released. So we'll have to go check his list and see how it compares to ZZ's. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked that Captain Marvel is not on here. Shazam. Oh, yeah, especially if Superman is affected by magic. There's Captain Marvel powered by magic. Oh, you, you know what? You said strictly non-magic. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very nice. Well, you know, what else is magic is uh, those headlines that come across our screen or at this time in the newspaper. So it's it's time that we check out Tonight's top story Oh, Bob, wait a minute I just got news Michael, he's gotten out He's available He's gonna <laughs> jump on This is the greatest headline of all It's what we've been waiting for Unbelievable So let's add him in here Oh my god Did I make it? Can you hear me? You are here, Michael We're so glad to see that you're okay What were they doing to you over there? Oh. You don't even want to know, man. There was too much probing. I was, I was, it was too <laughs> horrifying. And and the worst part about it is when I finally got escape, I got, I got free, and I loaded up the, the scans for this week's episode, the first thing I see is this giant horrifying face of Blob Cryfeld reaching out through the computer screen <laughs> to grab me. And I was like, I can't get away. <laughs> he might be the one that ratted you out, that got you put in there. He's after me. I'm telling you, they all don't like me. <laughs> 
Well, you're just in time. The greatest news of all is that you've rejoined us, but uh, we're in the Wizard News segment here. The Punisher is getting a new direction from the creative team of John Ostrander and Tom Lyle, who are telling the tale of Frank Castle taking over a mafia family instead of shooting bullets at them. According to Ostrander, every time he killed the head of a crime family, somebody else would come in and nine times out of ten, they're worse than they were before. Now Frank has the ability to keep one neighborhood safe and to belong to something resembling a family again. If you can't beat him, join him, I guess. <laughs> there are also plans for a new costume, for which a rejected concept sketch is featured in this issue. Do you like that, Bob? Do you like that look? No, I don't like it at all. <laughs> It does that very 90s thing where he's got that singular piece of armor on, on one shoulder. He just wants to protect the one shoulder. Yeah, it reminds me of Craven the Hunter's son. Isn't that kind of what his armored look was like? Ish, yeah. Oh, I just got, I just flipped past the page of uh, He Who Shall Not Be Named. <laughs> but uh... Wizard has done this before, where when they were announcing the 2099 line, back then it was the 2093 line of books, they had a Punisher 2099 sketch concept that I actually thought was way cooler than what they went with. Uh, in this case, maybe not so much, because he's just got like a sweater on. And then he's got one piece of armor on his shoulder, like you said, a skull face. I don't get this design at all. <laughs> his knives are way too far down his legs for him to, to g grab in a pinch, too. It's, I don't he, know. He looks like the angriest high school drama teacher that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> enunciate! Enunciate! My high school drama teacher, his famous line was, Guys, you just don't get life. And that's sad. Like, yeah, we're teenagers. We don't get life. That's a devastating thing for a teacher to say. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> It dark. was pretty intense, yeah. You don't get it, and you're not gonna. <laughs> well, Michael, why don't you take on the next story? Motown Records is moving into the comic book game with their Machine Works line of books, which is being distributed through Image Comics. That's kind of interesting. I like Motown. I'm a big Motown fan. Four titles that'll launch, including The Crush about a criminal psychiatrist who moonlights as a violent Avenger, okay? Man Against Time, about a time traveler named Law, who attempts to set the time stream right as he sees fit. It's very Loki. I mean, it's also like, how could he set it right by... That's, I don't know, it's contradictory. <laughs> and casual heroes about a superhero team with a leader who is more concerned about fame and fortune than saving the day. So I, I will tell you, Michael, I actually, I went hunting these down. Uh, I was trying to see if I could read them because I'd never heard of them before. The only one I found is The Crush. Okay. And it is like somebody who got the wrong idea about image, like, oh, big guns and killing people, right? And it's like half of the book is just the guy like meeting with patients. And then the other half is just randomly he's in costume and he's blowing away drug dealers and like shooting their faces. Smiley face bullet. It is so violent and it has no story. There's no villain. There's no conflict. I think there is a villain. Yeah, I think I think I think the crush is the villain. Yeah, he uh, must be. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the character design for the character is pretty cool. I, I actually will admit I like it, but it looks more like a villain than a hero. Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. They they should call him the hypocrite. <laughs> I also like the look of this casual heroes. It looks almost very Mike Allred looking. Style. Yeah, it is fun. It is more cartoony, yeah. I just picture a bunch of guys in, like, 
hanging out in jeans and like t-shirts <laughs> like it's like in the suburbs just sort of like just, yeah, just like, it. and the man against time is very that one feels like ex machina to me it kind of has that look to it yeah it's it's very dark though like it's almost like hard to maybe the scan is an issue but it looks just dark so these books are likely remembered by very few why do you think so few publishers in the 90s survived into the 21st century following the success of Image? Or can you think of a company that actually did? Well, I honestly yeah. think it's it's the same. Just like Wizard went down during the dot-com boom, it's sort of the same thing. Like, everybody went to the internet to read, to you know, for content and so on, and I think they just couldn't keep up. Yeah, well, because when I think of, like, other companies that have continued to thrive, like Dynamite and Boom Studios are kind of the only other, but they do mostly, like, licensed books, it kind of feels like a lot of times. Um, I think the real secret, for example, why Image survived and the others didn't is that in the 90s, you had major news coverage of these comic book events and milestones and sales and all this kind of stuff, which created a sense of celebrity and, like, a value behind a handful of creators, and they made a lot of money, and then and they invested all that money in keeping the hype about themselves alive as long as they could, even during, like, the dying enthusiasm in the 2000s. But like you said, Michael, now the media, it's just, it's so fragmented. Print books themselves are a dying format that you can't get the attention, first of all, of the general populace on the same scale in this century that you could back then. And the few that do hear about it, they don't want to buy a printed comic book. Like, that's not, even if they like the idea of a story, they're like, I'll wait until it becomes a movie or a netflix yeah. series you know i mean even image though if you think about it really the only image character or book to survive long term is spawn and savage image. dragon yeah but, but not popularity a, wise probably to, to yeah. a much lesser extent i mean like you don't see I, you know i get emails from my comic shop every single week and i don't see any months where savage dragon comes out as new issues maybe every once in a blue moon mm -hmm. but you know image sort of pivoted in the way they do things almost maybe if you think about like the way dark horse does it and, and stuff like that mm -hmm. where they just have people come in and come up with just random stories that are not tied to any sort of universe sort of thing that's my thought well and i would say too that like there's also just not as much excitement for american comics anymore like the new generation they love manga and they love anime and all that kind yeah. of stuff like that's what they're into with the the companies did not manage to ignite an excitement in the upcoming generation it's still all the kids like us from the 90s we're the ones keeping them alive and that's it what happens yeah. when we lose interest you know any comic shop you go to most people that you're, you're going to see there are going to be from 35 to 55 in age yeah even like with all the marvel movies and everything it just hasn't translated so but now we're going to kick off the year-end fun with a wizard retrospective on the comic book news of this year the big 10 10 events that rock the comics world in 1995 so start us off here michael
Comics goes Hollywood. According to Wizard, the new Batman movie, ironically, there's a new Batman movie out now, was so big. Everything else, like Tank Girl or Judge Dredd, pretty much sucked. Former Batman artist Norm Brayfogle declares modern comics are competing with movies and we're losing out. We literally just said that. Yeah, it's the same thing right now. (laughs) And I don't think it was as bad back then, but... Yeah. Uh, next up, the price crunch paper pushes cover prices uh, explains why comics cost more now at this time due to printing costs and how that hurts the sales at the local comic book stores. For example, the Superman books, their cover prices were $1.50 at the beginning of 1995, but by this time, they had risen to $1.95. And one owner says, quote, Marginal titles are more severely hurt by price increases. Readers of those books seem to be subconsciously looking for a reason to drop the titles <laughs> i say if it's marginal it was never going to sell well anyway right so if you want them to sell make them great that's the secret it's not the price of the book <laughs> yeah but you know in hindsight if they were still dollar 95 today i'd be thrilled this oh was, yes you know <laughs> 399 4.99 i went to the shop the other day to pick up one book 7.99 i was like Oof. oh yeah <laughs> Didn't even get the foil cover or anything, huh? No, nothing cool. Yeah, but there was recently a the uh, the Batman Catwoman story arc, which their Christmas issue, which was like a between issue, was ten dollars. I'm like ten dollars wow. for fifty pages. I'm like, oh man, what a what a racket. All right, Bob, what's next? Send in the clones is obviously covering the impact of the clone saga in Spider-Man comics, which I'll be talking about at length shortly. It's the whole reason I'm here. So <laughs> well, we'll come back after that. We have comics go online explains that there's a reason why most publishers have done email and web addresses. Comic fans want more. They want to talk to other collectors and want to get closer to comic creators. I don't think this person has ever met a comic collector. (laughs) Uh, But don't necessarily want to travel to conventions. Meeting people online is almost as good as talking on the phone and getting mail, only it's less expensive and more exhilarating. Two things that don't exist anymore, talking on the phone and getting mail. I don't even know what to do with this. If if there's like a comic collector calling me on the phone, like I'm I'm, I'm just going to ignore it and call the police. I am probably going to hang up, yeah. I'm going to chat on AOL.com. It's very exhilarating to go in this group chat here. (laughs) Comics and nerds. What's your favorite indie publisher, ASL? (laughs) Oh, boy. Magic Show explains how, with the comics industry taking a downward turn, retailers needed a boost. They needed a shot in the arm. They needed another source of revenue. They needed a little magic. What they got saved many businesses. What was true then is true now. In the failing comics market, most comic book stores stayed afloat for the past 27 years through selling collectible card games. And I want to point this out because recently a shop opened up near my house, probably within like a mile from my house or so, and they're calling it Gotham City Collectibles. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, first of all, legally, how do you have that name? (laughs) And I go in there and I'm like, oh, do you have any like old DC wall books? No. Do you have any collectibles? No. What What do you have? Oh, we got Magic the Gathering and Pokemon cards. But why are you called Gotham City Collectibles? <laughs> they were going to say it was like a sandwich shop. Yeah, really. 
Just my random thought for the day. Well, you could have asked if they had any bad girl comics, because bad girls make it good, according to this next blurb. It explains how this new glut of female-led comic books has bolstered the industry during a downturn. Melanie Crawford Chadwick of Harris Comics says, quote, Every month there seems to be a new crop of bad girl comic books featuring characters I've never heard of before, put out by companies I've never heard of before, produced by creators I've never heard of before. <laughs> And veteran creator John Byrne, he chooses to pontificate that, quote, Most of the bad girl books seem to rely solely on shock value, and shock value is not something you can maintain long term. Ask Madonna. <laughs> or Lady Gaga at this point. That didn't age well. Yeah. But you know who did. Hey! hey The material <laughs> girl herself. If you want to hear more about this phenomenon, you guys can join me and my wife, Dr. Kristen, as we spend 90 minutes dissecting the Wizard Bad Girls special on the bonus episode of the podcast yeah there's a lot of talks about boobs and butts and uh <laughs> you got your wife to actually appear on the podcast can you believe it steven did it i figured it was time and uh yeah it was quite a conversation you guys are gonna love it so <laughs> well two out of three because we're never getting my wife on here <laughs> small press big splash declares that the small press is the strongest and best growing part of the comic book industry according to the small press expo organizer of course john Cohen, I'm not saying it's not going on in other places, but the small press is where it's really happening and the stores are starting to see it. Despite this totally unbiased bravado, it is mentioned that many smaller publishers may be lost in the shuffle of the distribution wars. Dun dun dun. Kind of always the struggle though, right? Yeah, yeah really. That's pretty timeless. Apocalypse Now recounts the success of of the X-Men Age of Apocalypse storyline, with Marvel explaining that we're still getting responses more than six months later, but it's not over yet, because Grey Beast, Sugar Man, and Holocaust are the four characters who came through, and all of the stuff that happens with them will now take place in current continuity. <laughs> Sugar Man and Holocaust... <laughs> Sugar Man, if I remember, was like a giant face with like four arms or something. Like, yeah, he had his own Mjolnir. How do you say that? Oh, really? Yeah, oh, his own hammer. Yeah, Uru hammer or something. Okay. Yeah, it was. Uh... If you call him like Sugar Daddy or something like that, that would have been a different <laughs> character altogether. I mean, X Man is kind of cool because it's like the young version of Cable, mm -hmm. and and he's back in the comics now yet again. Oh, yeah, he was in like X Men Red, and he was uh, he had his own series for a while. He got a love interest. There's a whole to do about X Man now, who's back. And spoiler alert: he kills old Cable to take his place. <laughs> Oh, I like it. I like it. Now, going back to what we were just talking about, about the current crop, this is where it was all starting to begin. The manga migration poses the question, long popular in Japan, how did the U.S. suddenly get exposed to this phenomenon? Because of Power Rangers, says Saiji Horibuchi of Viz Comics, the largest U.S. publisher of manga. Even though it's neither Japanese comic nor animation, they associate it with that world. Power Rangers was a hit, and on its heels came Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball. So there, you have, you have the Power Rangers to thank. And it's been a big Power Rangers week uh, at my house. We found a vintage Power Rangers Red Ranger blaster saber thing at the oh, thrift wow. store. My three-year-old has just been running around the house going, Go, go, Power Rangers! Dad! Monsters! And it's just been a Power Rangers adventure all week long. Loves it. That's pretty cool. That sounds like just a better version of Shark Week if you're having... <laughs> 
Power Rangers week. I participate every year. (laughs) So I think I'm up next here. Finally, Distributor Exclusives declares it will affect you whether you like it or not. That could mean anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Marvel went exclusive with Heroes World after buying the distribution company. Then DC and Image went exclusive with Diamond Distributors. And the remaining books being distributed by Capital City means comic book store owners are paying for three different deliveries, which arrive on different days, says one owner about his customers. It's hard for them to understand that DC and Image may be here today, but Marvel will be in tomorrow because it comes through another delivery source. I mean, yeah, it's it's affecting them whether they want it to or not. (laughs) It's funny because DC recently abandoned Diamond and Mm -hmm. started distributing themselves, and their comics go to the shops now on Tuesdays, and Marvel and everybody else show up on Wednesday. History repeating itself. Uh, Yeah, seriously. So this is my question then. Was this affecting you guys in 1995? Like, did you even consider that, oh, it's being distributed by a different company? I think in in 1995, I didn't even know that Wednesday was comic book day. I just was like... Same. Yeah, I, I, I would just like sometimes convince someone to drive me down to the general store and be like oh good there's comics here yeah because i mean for me i mostly focused on back issues anyway i would only buy like one or two new titles with any frequency or consistency so i never cared about release dates but i will tell you now the fifth issue of batman 89 is like a month late and it's bugging me i'm finally getting back to the comic book store and i keep calling them up I'm like is it on your schedule to be delivered no yeah no. it just keeps being delayed it's still not showing up ah now i know how the image fans felt in the 90s I'm like batman 89 a lot of dc books are getting delayed lately yeah. a lot it's really not that great it's too bad D- dc's in, in bad shape right now let's look on to happier days here as we check out our table of contents so guys wizard issue 53 with a january 1996 cover date is the year end spectacular coming in just shy of 300 pages and packed with goodies yes this polybag has an ash mini comic an oversized vampirella trading card and the marvel versus dc voting ballot promised in issue 51 plus an x-files half comic offer we definitely have that here in the archives bob you picked up this issue did it have all those goodies i have all of that stuff in front of me right now what's your favorite well the ash mini comic is something that i haven't i haven't seen anything like this in well since probably this magazine came out (laughs) but this is pretty cool i like the mini comic nice well also this cover is a jam cover by a duo of john ramitas yes both junior and senior and bob as our resident spider-man expert which romita rendering of the wall crawler do you prefer do you like the classic john ramita senior or jrjr Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> put, put me on the spot with this one. I prefer Senior, and I will say that I like Junior's covers, but it's a little too boxy for my taste. Yep. That's kind of been our ongoing discussion here on the podcast is, do you like John Romita Jr. or don't you? Yeah, the boxiness is definitely something that's hard for me. <laughs> I cannot accept it. It, <laughs> looks like, accept. <laughs> it looks like the characters are, like, strung out like lego brick people mm-hmm. <laughs> like and minecraft like, yeah and like and that's for somebody it's just not for me it's yeah. distinctive he has a style but it's just yeah is it a style that makes you run towards oh, yeah. it or run away from it yeah you can you can see that style from across the street 
<laughs> Very clear. Regarding the production of this cover, there's actually an entire feature in this issue called Separation Anxiety, where Wizard visits the offices of the International House of Color, or IHOC. You won't get any pancakes there. A team who provided coloring for comics like The Savage Dragon, Pit, and Spawn, while they were working with Steve Olaf at Oleoptics. Then they broke off, formed their own company, and now are continuing to do work for Eric Larson, among others. Uh, the article gives a visual breakdown of how this issue Spider-Man cover was colored digitally using those newfangled computers. They're cited as, quote, the wave of the future. <laughs> Use those clickety-clackety boxes and do that digital work. And... They'll affect you whether you like them or not. Apparently. <laughs> But the article is actually written by Wizard's senior art director, Matt Tierney, and as a result, it's actually very technical, but it's still an interesting look at how the production of comics was changing. I know, personally, for me, digital coloring was the thing that stood out to me most when I visited the Extreme Studios offices in the 90s as a kid, and, and there's like, nobody else in the office except the digital colorist, and I was like, whoa, they do it on computers, I had no idea! So, it was exciting. I can understand why they would devote a couple pages to it it's pretty cool the big takeaway for me is the size of the monitors that they're working on yeah it's like a like a compact car like up on the desk there <laughs> all right bob it's time to get into some spidey action oh baby spinning a new web is a detailed breakdown of the spider clone saga up to this point where at the beginning of 1996 ben riley was hailed as the new slash old spider-man having been declared the genetic original that was taking over for the clone in quotes peter parker who was retiring with Mary Jane to Oregon, where they would await the arrival of their first child. When asked about the new costume design, Bob, editor Bob Budiansky explains the new costume is a visual statement that this isn't quite the same Spider-Man that Peter Parker was. It's like moving into someone else's house and making it your own. Kind of creepy. I mean, as long as they don't still live there. <laughs> Budiansky mentions that fan mail and sales on the Spider-Man books have risen substantially since the Clone Saga has been introduced, but clarifies, none of what is written so far is necessarily the end of the story. It's just the story until now, which is, you know, comics in general. So, Bob, at this time, obviously, Clone Saga was all the rage. You loved it. Yeah, you're raging at it, or you're raging about how awesome it was. So where did you fall? I was actually all about it because I was not a regular comics reader at that point it's it was 1996 i think i was 13 and you know i i remember walking into the store and seeing uh an, an issue on the shelf and thinking like what there's two spider-men now and i was just like that's uh what i actually learned was uh part of the pitch in the in the creative meeting was what's better than one spider-man is like two spider-men and i don't know i i was into it so i was like somebody that was getting back into you know slowly getting back into reading comics on a regular basis it seemed like a good jumping on point because i had been missing for a number of years and so had the scarlet spider so you know we were, <laughs> we, we were coming back into the story together and yeah i dug it and still do okay you're excited. Michael's been telling us Ben Riley is back now. Have you pursued any of that? Yeah, I've been reading it. You know what? He's a hard character to write because he's just like, uh, this is the meanest thing I'll, I'll say about one of my favorite characters is that he's kind of just like diet Spider-Man. So it's like, it was like, oh, it's Peter Parker, but without the history. But, you know, the good thing about that is that you can sort of 
make him a jumping on point. And that's what I did as a 13 year old. I was like, okay, I'm going to get into this. This Peter Parker is like, yeah, I recognize that he's Spider-Man, but Ben Riley's new to the scene just like me. So I'm going to, I'm going to hang with him. Yeah. That, that's where I was at too. Cause I was always a Spider-Man fan, but I never read the books on a monthly basis. And so for me, like this was where I started. So it worked, you know, it was like the clone saga and beginning of a new era. I'll jump on for a while. So, but Michael, keep it with the Marvel Comics news. What do we have next? Urban Renewal is a look at the new direction Marvel Comics is taking in 1996 to focus on quality over quantity. Really? Okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Marvel editor Mark Grunewald explains the logic behind Marvel cutting dozens of titles from their publishing schedule at the end of the year, most of which were created during the early 90s boom period. At our peak, about 120 were on our publishing schedule on any given month. I think they do that now because there's so many Marvel books that come out of it. It's crazy. Like Spider-Man alone, there's like a gazillion stories that come out every month. Now we're going down to about 75. A few of the books getting the boot include Thunderstrike, War Machine, U.S. Agent. He had his own book. (laughs) I didn't realize that. Uh, Okay. Forceworks, Blaze, Blade, Hellstrom, and Druid. He also had his own book. (laughs) Fantastic Force. Punisher War Journal, Punisher War Zone, Warlock, and the Infinity Watch, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Quasar. How did he still have his own book? I don't know. How do these characters in these books? I don't get it. Oh, boy. Also, for um, ask for comment, is Peter David who says... Marvel is really in a no-win position. When expanded, the line and capitalized on the success of various titles, people said these were copycat books designed to leech away as much money as possible from the consumer's wallet. When it cancels said books and trims down to a manageable level, people regard it as a sign of weakness. On the other hand, it does have characters with proven, time-tested audience appeal, so naturally it makes sense for Marvel to be focusing its energies in that direction. That's a wordy statement from a wordy man. (laughs) The time-tested titles getting another push include The Avengers, being headed by editor Bob Harris, who took the X-Men to new heights of popularity, Captain America by Mark Wade, who declares that I don't want to have him walking around and calling 35-year-old men son. I hate it when he does that, because it makes him seem so old. He is old. It's okay. (laughs) People think that Cap is 50, but he's really in his late 20s or early 30s. So can you think about it? He's from that older time, but he was frozen for all those years, so... Yeah, but he still has got, like, a, you know, whippersnapper kind of mentality. I mean, they even play around with that a little bit with Chris Evans in the movies, so I, I get it. Also sticking around are the Fantastic Four, Iron Man... Silver Surfer, which is only being written by George Perez with art by Tom Grindberg, also Thor by William Mesner Lobes and Mike Diodati Jr. Diodato. <laughs> hey, Diodati, baby! Diodati! <laughs> <laughs> Diodato 
Jr., which is approaching its 500th issue. The Incredible Hulk continuing to be written by Peter David, while J.M. DeMatteis is writing both Daredevil and Doctor Strange. Did you guys read any of these books in the 90s? Not a one. I did a few because I just would grab whatever was available, you know? So, like, I, I didn't have, like, any ongoing continuity follows at the time, but, like, I would pick up... I was actually really upset when they canceled War Machine. And I remember U.S. Agent's book and being like, that's not Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> I occasionally would grab a couple of Fantastic Fours here and there, but not all that often. I mean, like, at this time in comics, the Avengers were kind of, like, second-rate citizens in the comic books realm. Silver Surfer was kind of just sort of there. Nobody cared about Doctor Strange, to my knowledge. Daredevil was popular, but, you know, I don't know if I, I wasn't reading it back then. Well, it's just weird to have George Perez writing a book, because I don't think anybody ever was like, oh yeah, George Perez writing a new comic, you know? They're like, no, George Perez drawing a comic, but he was busy over at Malibu, like in techno comics. He's like doing all these other things, and he's like, well, I'll write a Silver Surfer story. These Silver Surfer issues probably now will be collected unfortunately with his yeah. uh, his yeah. situation but next year though another man who made his mark at marvel stan lee the wizard interview Ooh, and it's what i consider to be maybe the loosest interview stan the man had given up to this point he's just so like relaxed and like the interviewer tom russo is just kind of like poking at him and having some fun but after recounting his days as a food delivery boy and a theater usher as a kid stan reveals that while in the military he created quote a cartoon that I think was one of the most famous of World War II. I drew a cartoon of a soldier walking into a pro, that's like a prophylactic station, uh, smiling very proudly, and I had a little dialogue balloon over his head that's saying, VD? Not me! I won the war single-handedly. <laughs> It's kind of great. Uh, Stan also clarifies that although people think he was hired at Timely or Marvel through nepotism, he just answered a want ad, and the publisher Martin Goodman just happened to be the husband of his cousin. Quote, we hardly knew each other. I don't know if that's revisionist history or what, but <laughs> that's how Stan wants you to think about it. When asked about why he was so prolific in the 60s, Stan reveals, quote, I really don't like to write, which is why I'm such a fast writer. The faster I do it, the sooner I get finished can stop. Uh, when asked about Lee getting more credit than Jack Kirby for creating the classic Marvel characters, Stan says, I don't think these stories would have been as successful if Jack hadn't worked on them. The words that you read in all the stories were mine. When he did a story, there were always things he would add to it that we didn't discuss. Jack made great contributions to the plots, and after a while, some of the plots were Jack's. He was so good at it, it made it more fun for me to write. Jack and I in our lives never had an argument. Hmm. <laughs> Seems also unlikely. They, yeah. they kind of push. They're like, why did he go to DC Comics then? Jack just wanted to go to DC and he had every right to. That's just how Stan puts it. It's like, mm. Anyway, he also brings up an interesting point about creator rights. He says, people have said to me, don't you feel terrible that you don't own all of the characters you created? I don't feel bad because those were the rules when I created them. I've always lived by the rules. And finally asked if he would ever want to work on any non-Marvel characters, Stan says, I think I'd get a kick out of writing Lobo. <laughs> Stan Lee's Lobo. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
Uh, so I have to ask you guys, though, he's so not our generation. Like, he had, like, sparse, you know, projects he would do here and there, things he would write in our era. Do you have a favorite Stanley comic story or a run that you've gone back and checked out? Before I get into that, I just want to quickly revisit the VD Not Me cartoon <laughs> that he did here. This is probably my favorite Stanley thing ever, because he's saying here he doesn't have VD because he won the war single-handedly. <laughs> single-handedly, huh? Of course you don't have VD. <laughs> anyway, so for me, I actually went back and read a huge chunk of the original Fantastic Four run. And it is some of the most fun, like, comic reading that I've ever come across digitally, because, you know, you can't afford these things in, in physical copy. But the Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four collections, highly, highly, highly recommend getting getting those if you can find them because just streaming through those things man it is delightful is the word i'll use yeah you and steven definitely in agreement on that mm -hmm. what about for you michael i looked at some fantastic four some spider-man there's just something about those early early books that they wrote together and created together that just like has an interesting kind of energy about them and you know i didn't go deep into it but i've read quite a handful here and there and i i do enjoy them a lot the thing that puts the uh, the Fantastic Four run up over the line for me is the ongoing joke about the anti-street gang. Oh, yes. Which you need to familiarize yourself with that because that's just an incredible joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say for me, I was tempted to say Ravage 2099 because that's the only full run of Stan Lee that I have read. <laughs> Unless you count like the Stan Lee Imagines books that came out from DC Comics where he did his origin story for a Superman or a Batman or a Wonder Woman. I just found a Robin one, which I didn't know existed in that series. So I'm excited to read that. But I, as a kid, had Marvel Tales reprints of the death of Norman Osborn, Green Goblin, you know, like that whole storyline. So I thought that was really well done. So that was probably like as familiar as I was with actual Stan Lee comic storytelling at that time. But coming up next year, Bob, you were one of the winners of our <laughs> Defend Rob Liefeld. Co oh. Put a dollar in that jar. Oh, we had a contest. Uh, and so it's. I feel like it's only fair that you handle this next bit of business. He, he's going to come looking for me. <laughs> okay. In your face, aptly named, is a very revealing day in the life interview with Rob Eyelids at his Extreme Studios offices in Anaheim, California. Highlights include two different trips to Taco Bell, about which Rob says, we're here every day. <laughs> which I, uh, I, I'm going to say that that contributed greatly to his creative output. Yeah. <laughs> and an admission from the creator of Brigade that I bruised my right hand by smashing it into a wall. I was trying to get some drawing done, and people just kept coming up and interrupting me. I just got real frustrated and punched a wall. As a result, the interviewer notes that the creator of Bloodstrike... <laughs> oh, man. ...was drawing with his left hand instead. No word on whether or not that improved his art for that issue. Zing! <laughs> nice. The creator of Blood Wolf explains about that. I haven't mean, even heard of that one. <laughs> That's his Lobo. He's the most uncreative namer ever. Blood Strike, Blood Wolf. <laughs> wolf Strike. <laughs> Young Blood Wolf. Well, he's got a character named Supreme, and now I'm thinking about Taco Bell and Supreme. Is that where it came from? Supreme when... and his sidekick, Gordita. 
<laughs> he's like punching the wall and he's like, ah, oh, my taco hand. <laughs> his arch nemesis I, I, I find it funny that he's at his home in Extreme Studios, but he's wearing an image shirt in every photo. He knows how to keep the hype going. Yeah, seriously. The creator of Blood Wolf explains about the office environment. I'm definitely resented by people in this studio, and a big reason for that is that I do have my favorites, and I tend to be most abusive to the people I'm closest to in this company. That is some psycho stuff, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, that is some HR stuff that would come up today. (laughs) He was HR. (laughs) (laughs) HR was behind the wall that he punched. Says, but I don't threaten people. Of his place in the hierarchy of at Extreme Studios, Dan Fraga explains, I get to go to Taco Bell because Rob knows I'm good to go and that I'm not going to be a freak. <laughs> That's all it takes. Expanding on the apparently accepted abuse that's required to join the inner circle of the creator of Bloodpool. Is that real? That's Blood a real Pool? comic I just reviewed on the mini episodes. Oh my god. <laughs> Fraga says, have I ever come to blows with Rob? It's come close. There have been times where I know he wishes he could sock me out, and there's times where I felt the same way about him. But it's never happened. In fact, I probably take more abuse than a lot of people here because I am so close to him. I think that's called Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) They sent these things to an interviewer that they knew was going to see print. I cannot believe it. I mean, like, I, I, I guarantee you that Dan Fraga included like a bunch of notes in the envelope that was like i'm I'm, like send send help he's holding a taco bell hostage it's a total blood pool let's see but the abuse comes from outside the office as well as the creator of battlestone relates i was attacked by peter david a couple of years ago at the san diego comic-con and he was being very vicious the press used to be behind me a long time ago but now there seems to be some kind of resistance to giving me any sort of respect or due. there's just something about me that bothers people and i can't put my finger on it or my fist through it <laughs> but things are looking up for the creator of Bad Rock. A year ago, I felt we were going to fall off the cliff. Our books weren't selling well, and I had made some bad moves. <laughs> I had to become smarter and reinvent myself. Now with maximum press books like War Child on comic book store shelves, the creator of Evangeline is all about sunny skies and rainbows. I'd like to think that I'm a fairly positive person, but I know for a fact that I'm very cynical. Marriages, relationships, entertainment, I believe everything is a conspiracy. (laughs) I I know the cold reality. One thing I tell everyone is to trust no one. This could all go away tomorrow. When success comes, just put a clock on it, because eventually it will leave you. Words to live by. (laughs) Put that on a motivational poster in your office space. Everything he just said there. Is this a joke? This is all real. There are some nice things in here where there's like an artist. He's like, we're not going to run the cover you did. We're going to do mine instead. But then he's like, but I I, I like to think that I let him down easy, because I remember how paranoid I was as a young artist. And you're like, oh. I rejected his work, but I took him to Taco Bell. <laughs> The best part of this article, though, is just looking at the offices, all of the action figures and toys and comics that are just everywhere. It's it's amazing just, like, dissecting the stuff, because it's not all, like, his own product, you know? It's just in general. There's a lot of fun stuff there, so it was definitely a wonderland for some. In this article, he's name-dropped several characters. Bloodstrike, Bloodwolf, Bloodpool. Like, he just... 
just couldn't think of a better name than blood for everything. What's more extreme, though, than blood and striking and wolves? <laughs> but, Michael, take us back to gentler times. So, Wizard also interviews Adam West and Burt Ward in this issue. This really should be like a Stephen saying. We should just have Segan read this part. But <laughs> either way, asking them standard questions like, what was the first comic book they ever read? For Ward, it was Superman. And for West, it was Batman. I found it in a bunkhouse on our ranch. Just random comics on the ranch. Birth the superhero. Yeah. As far as things they collect, Adam admits, I have a whole warehouse of Batman memorabilia. And Ward confusingly declares he collects computer programs. <laughs> Is he talking about video games, like accounting software? Like boxes of mist and doom. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's probably collecting dogs because you guys have gone to Walmart and seen his brand of dog food, right? Not knowingly. This oh, is really? Break, this is breaking news here. Yeah, I don't this know. is a real deal. There is dog food that is, like, super high quality that he promotes, and it's got Robin, like, pictures of him as Robin in the 60s all over it. Like, he promotes it as basically, like, Robin says, you should buy this dog food for your dogs. I don't know how that is legal, but he does. I gotta get a dog now. Yeah, I I'm gonna get a, a picture of it. I'll send it over to you. It's crazy. When asked who would play them in a movie, West declares that few Future Batman Begins villain, Liam Neeson, wow, is the right man for the job. Wow, that's weird. Sees himself as Liam Neeson, wow, yeah. While Ward jokes, I would say Tom Cruise, if he were about ten years younger. Ha 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 I'm hilarious. <laughs> Finally, when asked about the last good movie they each saw, Burt Ward says he liked that lovable porker, babe. Is that what he really said, porker? He didn't say lovable porker, that's me. <laughs> While Adam West praises the controversial kids. Wow. Kids came out already? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Ah, I thought that was later. Interesting. I think that was like 94. Featuring a young Rosario Dawson, who would eventually play Batgirl in the Lego Batman movie. It's all connected, guys. And then in Sin City, and in Star Wars. All of them as Batgirl. And only as Batgirl. <laughs> uh, Alright, guys. So, speaking of another animal here, a croak of brilliance is an interview with Cyberfrog creator Ethan Van Skyver. A name which is sure to get a reaction in this day and age. I'm not even going to post this article on social media because we don't want to invite controversy and negativity. That's not a discussion we'll get into now or ever on this show. That's We're not about modern comics industry, we're about the old days. Instead, we're simply going to speak to his work here in 1995 on Cyberfrog, which is a stepping stone for us to eventually talk about his work on Green Lantern many years down the line, which is where I remember first hearing the name in the pages of Wizard. So, initially, Van Skyver self-published his amphibious avenger as a photocopied black and white book for five issues then cyberfrog got picked up by hall of heroes who had also been publishing the creed comic before that book went to lightning comics jumping all over the place here not creed the band right 
not Creed the man. <laughs> and then at this point, Cyberfrog had just been picked up for a soft reboot by Harris Comics, the home of Vampirella. And though the character has a cybernetically enhanced body, the Froggy Fighters creator states, quote, his main power, though, is his sarcastic wit and sense of humor. He'll approach the biggest, most powerful foe and just make him feel like crap. Then he'll kick his butt. I actually went and read the first two issues of this book, this run from Harris Comics, and I just gotta say, in addition to some very exciting art, it's actually pretty funny. I, or rather, I would say it's full-on 90s sarcasm with Quentin Tarantino-style pop culture reference humor, you know? So it borders on annoying, but it never crosses the line. You can definitely tell it's written by a dude with a chip on his shoulder, but from a storytelling perspective, I would say it works, and it all fits and you just say, oh, okay. Like, I just saw it as, like, he's the second coming of Keith Giffen for the 90s. It's very much of that same vein. Uh, there's even a shout-out to Wizard and Garib Sheamus in the first issue, which is pretty funny. Like, Cyberfog's like, it's not like I'm trying to get a meeting with Garib Sheamus. So it's kind of random. Now, the strange thing is that Van Skyver is present in my life on two sides of the country. It's really weird. So first off, the guy's originally from Provo, Utah, he said in one of his letters columns, where I have family i visited many many times in my life but apparently then he moved to the other side of the country at some point and he was residing in southern new jersey where he got to know my cousin during her high school years and even gave her a signed copy of cyber frog number one back in the day and then she handed that down to her 13 year old son he loves it he thinks it's hilarious i did ask anything she wanted to mention she's like well i never thought about dating him because his younger brother was cuter so there you go <laughs> But, so there you go, I thought, I was like, oh, I see why this, you know, was a pretty big indie book, and uh, got him more work later on, so, moving on! Speaking of new pros on the scene, 8 to the 4 finds Wizard putting the spotlight on 8 up-and-coming talents in the world of comics. Charles Adler is a British artist who is drawing the very popular X-Files and Mars Attacks comics books for Tops, while Edvin Bukovic and Darko Makan are a writer-artist team from Croatia who got to produce a Grendel miniseries, then graduated to doing Star Wars X-Wing Rogue Squadron for Dark Horse Comics. It's very cool. Chicago-based Gene Ha was rejected by Marvel, only to get his dream gig drawing Green Lantern at DC Comics, as well as an X-Men-related miniseries at Marvel, and now an Arkham Asylum story in Showcase 95, number 11. Ron Garney is the penciler on Captain America with Mark Wade, though he started out as a bartender and nightclub manager, who, after showing samples to Mike Zeck at a convention, got hired by Marvel to work on G.I. Joe, Daredevil, Moon Knight, and Uncanny X-Men. Kevin Lau has only drawn one title for a Hong Kong-based comic book company called Born to Kill. Sounds like a Steven Seagal film. Almost certainly. It's like the title of his biography, I think. <laughs> But was at this time working on a manga. We say manga, right? Working at. We say manga here. <laughs> I'm from I'm from Jersey. But was at this time working on a manga-style book for Valiant Acclaim Comics Punk's Universe with a lot of buzz behind him. Warren Ellis was apparently considered an up-and-comer despite having broken in on Batman: Legends of the Dark Knight and his volume of work for Marvel, including Excalibur, Thor, Doom 2099, a Storm miniseries, Carnage, Mind Bomb, One Shot, and even an Ultra Force for Malibu. Also mentioned 
is his dark alternate reality Marvel's follow-up, Ruins. Finally, Umberto Ramos is a fresh new talent from Mexico with a cartoony style that is catching fire on DC books like Impulse and Superboy, even getting his own title now from Marvel called X-Nation 2099. So guys, let's think about this. We've got a lot of names, a lot of these up-and-comers. Which of these pros would you say you're most familiar with? I mean, Warren Ellis seems like the easy answer, but uh, Umberto Ramos actually became one of my favorite Spider-Man artists during his time on the Dan Slott run. Yeah, that is pretty good. Very frenetic and uh, sort of cartoony. It suits the character, I felt like. And actually, I got a piece signed by him at a New York Comic Con a couple years ago. Cool. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. Michael, is there one one on this list that is someone you're like, oh, yeah, that guy? I mean, I do recognize Kevin Lau, and I've seen some stuff of his that I do like. But I would also agree, Umberto Ramos is very, very good. And I I would vote that. Even though he worked on Impulse, your least favorite character? (laughs) No judgment. You can't win them all. You got to make money somehow, right? I mean, I will say, you know, Ron Garney was the name that jumped out to me most as a name I saw in a lot of random comics I picked up in the 90s. But I think I've probably read more Warren Ellis. I remember being disturbed by Warren Ellis. Like, (laughs) I have that first issue of Ruins, and it freaked me out as a kid. I was rereading it this week, and it still grosses me out. I was mentioning at the top that we were talking about what music we listened to. When I listened to My Chemical Romance while reading Ruins, the song Cancer came up right when he visits Captain Marvel in this internment camp where he has been, like, just desecrated by cancer and his skin is cracking and leaking and it's so gross. Like, the Hulk gets all mutated by radiation and just dies. Like, that book, they should have had a disclaimer on the front because, man, messed up. Uh, But what's interesting is Charles Adler, he went on to be, like, the Walking Dead artist. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a huge part of comics history at this point. That's what he's most known for now. Wow, I didn't make that connection, yeah. Yeah, the Bukovic and Macan guys, like, they still work. Like, all, basically everybody here, like, went on to an actual career. There wasn't a flash in the pan, necessarily, so that's pretty impressive. But not done yet with trying to find the next big talent to feature their magazine. Star Search is an article asking, has the superstar artist been replaced by the flavor of the month? Basically wondering if there will ever be another Todd McFarlane or Jim Lee that makes as big an impact on the industry, and not not just new artists who quickly fade away. Amusingly, Flash in the Pan hot artist Stephen Platt suggests that, quote, everyone figures they'll be hot if they draw X-Men or Spider-Man or Batman. They end up drawing books where they're competing with the ghosts of the greatest artists of the last four or five decades. Regarding the number of imitators in the wake of these innovative image founders, Joe Casada says, quote, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, and Rob Eyelids aren't to blame for their clothes, but the fact that the image guys became famous and rich has made other artists what to draw just like them. That's not how you stand out. It's also mentioned that Marvel and DC are worried about promoting artists to become superstars because they will just leave them to form their own competing companies, because that is just the standard practice now. So they prefer to hire up-and-comers to draw like the big-name artists and pay them well without promoting them more than the characters they are drawing. Now, hilariously, a veteran artist George Perez, he says he met a fan at a convention who only knew his work on the Infinity Gauntlet and he says, quote, he was impressed. He said I could be the next Todd McFarlane. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. <laughs> 
Now, Todd himself provides some advice for the crop of new crop of talent. Quote, people like to chase jackrabbits, but they want to catch the jackrabbit. If you stay in one place, readers can catch you. Then they'll hug you and hold you and love you. And if you're running all over, readers stop hunting for you. The way to get hot for any length of time is to stay put. Do 25 issues of one comic and do a great job. People will pay attention. Todd has spoken. That sounds like like, like Mickey would say to Rocky, like, go catch that chicken. Bring it to that chicken. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta crap like a jackrabbit. <laughs> crap like a jackrabbit? <laughs> well, he's supposed to eat lightning and crap thunder. That was as close as I got. I, I mean, I, I, it's a sign of a, a great boxer. Crap like a jackrabbit. <laughs> Now, uh, in a sidebar, Wizard spotlights 10 more rising stars and has the audacity to rate their ability to become the next superstar artist. That's what good critics do. Yeah. We can't do it, but we're going to tell you. This is crazy. It's just like they're planting the seeds for future articles, right? Future covers of their magazine. So the roster includes Joe Maderera, J. Scott Campbell, Tom Grummet, Chris Bocciolo, Umberto Ramos, Greg Capullo, Mike Diodato Jr., Mike Diodaddy Jr., (laughs) (laughs) Kelly Jones, Adam Hughes, and Mike Waringo. So which of these, if any, would you guys say achieved superstar status? Are any of these guys on the level of those image founders? Capullo, (laughs) uh, Campbell, Hughes, I mean... (laughs) Almost the whole list. Well, what's crazy is so many of these guys are cover artists, right? And it feels like nowadays, if you're a cover artist for variants, you are the star. If you have a recognizable style and you can put it on a cover and everybody just wants to buy your covers, like they mentioned, Adam Hughes has never had a run on a book. Like, he, he never had, like, any length of time. He, people just want him to do pinups and stuff all the time. But his cover art is amazing. And, I mean, J. Scott Campbell hasn't done a full book since... Uh, Danger Girl. Yeah, really. Um, I mean, Capullo still does full books with, with right. you know, with all the Batman stuff. But like, I mean, these guys are juggernauts today. When you see the covers, people go crazy over these covers. Yeah, people love Joe Maderera. Like he had a good run in the '90s of being really an innovator of a style. He got a lot of praise in Wizard and on social media. People are always bringing them up in our Twitter feed. Oh yeah, Joe Mad's the greatest. Da da da. So I mean, but yeah, I would say Greg Capullo just for longevity and like people like greg capullo but innovative i don't know if he's that but he's a great artist like can you recognize greg capullo or do you just say it looks like mcfarlane has he evolved if you look at his batman you're like yeah that's capullo's batman you just okay. you just kind of know it i would say recognizable j scott campbell is probably the most recognizable artist like everything is exactly the same yeah his style 100 percent all right, well, Michael, you know, there's all these guys. They were the hot thing, but we want to know what the hot thing in Hollywood was. So why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion. going to start off with caught in a web is an article providing the current state of affairs regarding we're still talking about this (laughs) this 
planned James Cameron Spider-Man film. And I promise you, Michael, they won't shut up about it until the Sam Raimi. Like, it is an article that's like every other issue for the next four years of Wizard. God, really? Yeah, I mean, really, five or six years. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps going. Yeah, okay. This this is his real avatar. This is what it is. <laughs> Apparently, Stan Lee had appeared on the Dennis Miller show where the former Saturday Night Live cast member suggested Jim Carrey play the role of Peter Parker prior to the rubber-faced comedian becoming a megastar in The Mask and Batman Forever. Cameron's take on the casting is that it will probably be an unknown a 17 or 18 year old it's not going to be tom cruise or brad pitt because i'm playing him as a high school senior okay well i can't believe we're talking about it it's making me angry the article also provides a retrospective on past live action spider-man projects including the 70s tv series about which spider-man co-creator stan lee says the only involvement i had was that i was complaining about the damn thing all the time all the things that made spider-man a success were totally left out there was no humor no charm okay what was your favorite pre-2000 thousands spider-man adaptation bob well first i want to submit the theory that avatar is actually james cameron's like story of trying to get spider-man made <laughs> it's his interpretation that's his unobtainium unobtainium yes. is the spider-man film but my favorite pre-2000s adaptation of spider-man i was really really fond of the 67 cartoon paul oh. souls but the animated series from the 90s is probably probably my bread and butter particularly the episode where he's in the black costume chasing the shocker yelling at him like oh super yeah dramatically it's a, good, it's a good episode i do like the animated series up until the tail end of the second to last season and the entire last season there's so many memes now about how mary jane was just so mean to him series <laughs> i don't know i really love those like 70s made for tv movies like that the chinese web is so good i just I love, love that movie yeah. i love mm. that movie because that's where i would go initially just for nostalgic purposes is the nicholas hammond series of movies but spider-man and his amazing friends to me feels like the most like classic marvel style interpretation like just in character design and the fun attitude of the show like the 90s series is a little too angsty for me now, although I recognize that neurotic Peter Parker, that is a staple of the early comics, especially, <laughs> so it's a very good adaptation, but it's just like, something about Spider-Man and his amazing friends, to me, just like, hits all the sweet spots, or just like, that feels like Spider-Man to me. I, myself, was very angsty in the 90s, so <laughs> that's what I was looking for in a cartoon at the time, was just like, angst and existential crisis, but I probably would say the 67 cartoon is my favorite. Okay. Uh, the top story in the trailer park section of Wizard this month is the announcement of a live-action Generation X TV movie set to premiere on Fox Network in January of 96, which is described as 90210 meets mutants. <laughs> we reviewed it a while ago. We covered this at great detail, and I was forced to watch this. <laughs> One of our best bonus episodes, oh, it, for sure. It's, it's up there, I'll tell you. It's a, it's a bonus episode, all right. 
<laughs> so go back and check out the conversation in our archives. Also mentioned in the story are Nick Fury and Black Widow films that were in the works at the same production company. So, Bob, I got to ask you, have you ever seen this Generation X thing? So Steven and I, uh, every now and then, will he'll talk to me about like, you know what the best X-Man movie is? And I'm like... <laughs> Generation X, right? And he's like, yeah, what do you think about it? And I have to admit to him every single time, because I think he represses the memory when I tell him, is that I not only have I not seen it, but I have no recollection of it ever existing. I didn't know it existed until these two jokers made me watch it, so I feel yeah. you. No yeah, I, I am interested in watching it, but like... As, as soon as we stop talking about it here, I'll go back to not knowing that it exists. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steven and I love it more than anybody, so I guess that makes up for the deficit in your appreciation or even recognition of its existence. Touché. Okay. The Wizard just featured an article about the end of X-Men the Animated Series last issue. Now it's announced that 10 more episodes are expected to be ordered by Fox, leading to a fifth season of the hit show and that's the question did that come through did we get that fifth season were there a few more episodes in the mix no i don't think i, I think they gave us the uh the 10 episodes and then no fifth season if oh, memory okay. serves yeah because i mean disney plus is going to be releasing x-men 97 which i assume is supposed to be the year after the, yeah. the show ended and, and i am extremely hyped for that i'm pretty pumped for that too i hope it's going to be good very curious, yeah. Okay. The Hulk is set to cameo on a revamped second season of the Fantastic Four cartoon series, which will then cross over into the Iron Man animated series, adapting the Hands of the Mandarin story arc that played out across Iron Man, War Machine, and Force Works comics. When you were reading War Machine, did you get it on that crossover, Bob? I don't remember that specifically, but I have, again, no recollection of the Fantastic Four animated series or Iron Man. Wow. From when I, this is from. I didn't know they were on back then. I, I, I'm aware of them now. Oh, I watched them all the time. And the Incredible Hulk series, like all three of those were like Sunday morning is when they played in my area. So I just Sunday. wake up and watch the Marvel Action Hour followed by the Incredible Hulk. Like it was wild. Did not have it here on the East Coast that I can remember. Huh. You had Sunday morning cartoons? Yeah, so I actually wrote a whole article about this for Retro Days website way back when, and it's, yeah, like, we had Sunday morning cartoons in addition to Saturday morning cartoons. Whoa. So it was wild. Like, I loved Sunday mornings. It was, like, Fantastic Max and the comic strip and all these random old, like, syndicated cartoons nobody remembers. You you lived in a different timeline. Yeah, really. <laughs> Apparently yeah. so. It, it, for for me, it was, uh, you know, Sunday morning was being forced to go to church every Sunday. So well, I, I had to go to church eventually, too, but they luckily played it early enough that I was like, yes, cartoons! Oh, no, I, I, I spent my Sunday recovering from Saturday, because I was <laughs> eating all that cereal and waking up at dawn to watch cartoons. Chow down to that fun dip on Saturday nights? Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Get me my Dunkaroos. Oh, Dunkaroos. I love Dunkaroos. Okay. Not content to work on a Fantastic Four movie that will never get made, Chris Columbus is now developing a Daredevil movie that will also never get made. <laughs> 
Originally, the rights to an Electra film had been held by Oliver Stone's production company, but apparently a deal has been worked out that will allow this essential character to appear in the Columbus Daredevil story. Neither film is ever made with Columbus in the director's chair. He really wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I know, it's too bad. Finally, as mentioned by Stephen in episode 50, George Clooney is being targeted to play Britt Reed in the Green Hornet film with Jason Scott Lee as Cato, which would have been fitting since the actor had just played Bruce Lee in Dragon the Bruce Lee Sword, which is a movie that I love. I it is, love it's awesome. I love that movie so much. I saw it like twice in the theater. Of course, Clooney appears as Bruce Wayne in the not-so-great Batman and Robin instead. It sounds like either way he would have been in a bad film, because as we read earlier, Cato in this Green Hornet script was going to shoot fireballs out of his hands. <laughs> what? Yep, that was their their big innovation for Kato. <laughs> you know what? Give it to me. I would loved it. I know. I want it now. It would have been yeah, as bad as the Street Fighter movie, you know? Oh, boy. Now, I gotta mention, there's also a casting call in this issue for a legend movie based on the comics like Madman and Concrete and all that that I will be covering on the mini-episode with our special guest, Steven Sapellis, and our other special guest, Sean Robert. So we're, we're gonna get into that little bit of a discussion later. But also, I have to mention, Wizard eliminated their dedicated toy call of an issue 50 after uh, falling out with Sean Ani, uh, who mentioned that when we had him on the Wizard Files. And so they put all the toy news in the junk drawer section, but also their trading card section had been cut down as well. So we've decided to consolidate Gambit's deck of cards and Action Figure Apocalypse into a new all-purpose segment called... Merch Madness. <laughs> Take it away, Bob. At this point in time, Fleer has purchased Skybox, eliminating all competition in the marketplace. And so now, Fleer Skybox is extending their trading card innovation to the DC universe. As a result, DC now has its own overpower collectible card game, featuring 55 card starter sets of Batman and Superman characters for players to enjoy, which I thought was awesome. I had them, had no one to play them with. Nice to look at, though. <laughs> the Batman Master Series is a 90-card set featuring Spectra Etch, Chromium and Clear Chrome chase cards, as well as an artist-proof gold signature subset. No gold signature subsets! <sighs> yeah, I, like, had one of those, like, wistful, like, look-off-into-the-distance moments just now. <laughs> you know, there's, like, sad piano playing while I while I think <laughs> about it. Then you guys are like, Bob, you okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm back. <laughs> so anyway, Power Chrome DC Legends 95 is a 150-card set featuring all the major characters of the DC universe with chase card selections including Clear Chrome, Battle Zone, Heavy Hitters, and Legacy cards with refractory chrome technology. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> also on the way in 1996 is Outburst DC Firepower Embossed Card Set. I don't know what that is either, but I want it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. It's like they're making up for lost time. They're like, oh, we have the DC license? Literally put out, like, seven new card sets immediately. The kids love Chrome. Get them the Chrome. <laughs> Dale Keown's Pit 
is getting a 99-card set with art by Jim Lee, Joe Chiodo, Frank Frazetta, and Peter David. <laughs> is that weird? Innovative chase cards include Ashcan character and cover cards, 3D Hollow Forge cards, silicone cards, and an ultra-rare Rorsum Pit Mega Motion card with 24 frames of actual animation contained within the card. That makes me feel insane. <laughs> That's like cards from the future. <laughs> this issue also features the first mention of Amalgam as a sequel trading card set to the Marvel vs. DC card set, but no details as to what the subject matter of the cards will be. <laughs> oh, mysterious. And I will tell you guys, I was collecting a couple years ago the Amalgam cards. I just picked up a pack. They are not cheap, but I'm going to be opening them on our YouTube channel to let you guys know a little bit more about this series I'm doing for the Retro Network called Wax Pack Flashback. But you can see me open a pack of amalgam cards here in the future, so look out for that. You gotta send me an alert. In action figure news, Toy Biz is releasing a Generation X toy line to coincide with the release of the TV movie. I don't remember that either. <laughs> Characters include Jubilee, Chamber, Skin, Emplate, Penance, and Phalanx. Those are all characters I know, except for Emplate. Uh, Wizard wishes for a White Queen Emma Frost figure, which shows up in the next wave with Banshee and others. The only Generation X figure I have is a White Queen figure. I have an Emma Frost figure, because there was also a promotion where you could win a prize pack that was associated with the Generation X movie, and I reassembled every item in that a couple years back when we did our bonus episode. And one of the things still hanging around is that Emma Frost. So uh, if you guys want it, let me know, I'm trying to get rid of it. <laughs> I like your style, man. <laughs> Toy Biz is also teasing toys based on Silver Surfer to promote the upcoming animated series and a Venom Planet of the Symbiotes line to tie into the planned but never produced live-action Venom film and even an Avengers line. Toy Biz president Avi Arad says, The Avengers are getting a kick in the ass in the comics. <laughs> Sure they, I guess. <laughs> and I want to capitalize on this excitement with a toy line, as you do. Finally, to coincide with the syndicated Ultra Force cartoon series and recent acquisition of Malibu by Marvel, Galoob. Oh, that's fun to say. I forgot about them. <laughs> Galoob is releasing a second series of Ultra Force figures, including Rune, Sludge, Lord Pumpkin, and Primeval. Wizard says the ghoul figure from Series 1 has the best and funniest action feature in the bunch. Wasn't Primeval the, the villain on the Ghostbusters cartoon? Not the real Ghostbusters. Yeah, the Filmation's Ghostbusters, yeah. you're right. It's Primeval, But yeah. this is an evil prime, so they call him Primeval. I love it. All right, well, guys, you know, there's a lot of action figures going around, a lot of card sets going around, but uh, we got a couple of guys here who are also invested in all of that try to keep the hype going so we're going to open up jim and todd's hype machine guys todd's ego column is no more it's true Let's get mm. that wistful piano music back here, Bob, because oh, we will not yeah. be hearing the monthly ramblings of Todd McFarlane. But he does have a few more things to hype, nonetheless, in the magazine here, because we find out that there is a Spawn board game coming to toy stores everywhere. Uh, in addition to six sculpted Spawn figure pieces, the game also includes a collector's edition comic book and 90 Spawn game cards. The game these days sells for around $25 to $50 
others depending on if it's sealed or not uh, i actually wonder if hashtag spawn hunter has this in his collection but i have to imagine he does this game was made by pressman which was owned by the same guy who produced the Crow movies, Judge Dredd, and several other comic book adaptations in the 90s. He was actually interviewed in issue 52 last time around, so just kind of funny, that synergy, this Pressman guy. I feel like if, you, if you're winning or losing the Spawn board game, either way it ends with watching Wanda move on with her life. <laughs> Always. Yeah. But there is no major Jim Lee news to be had of this issue yet, the tally results may surprise you because I have to mention in the excitement of talking about X-Files with Annie and Steven last episode, I must have been abducted by aliens and experienced the lost time phenomenon because I did not do the tally. Can you believe it, Michael? I did not do the tally in issue 52. And I missed... You could have been there. You could have been spared. Oh, wow. <laughs> The universe is against me on that one. I was, oh boy. So, but these, these are going to be cumulative tallies for issue 52 and 53 now. So these issues, we have Jim Lee was mentioned 12 times. Todd McFarlane mentioned nine times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 292 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 318. So we're at the beginning of 1996 here. So in five years, that's five years of mentions in the pages of Wizard Magazine. That's five years of you counting <laughs> <laughs> just about but speaking of counting michael we got a list to count down here so why don't you take us into turok's top 10 special edition The goofy top ten lists at the end of the magazine have been getting increasingly more offensive and borderline uncomfortable at times. Yes. So we're skipping the attempted comedy this time in favor of New Year's Solutions, the ten things Wizard would like to see in 1996. Why don't you read that first one for us, Michael? A new Teen Titans book on par with the level of quality DC puts into Robin, Superboy, and Impulse. And the team should star those three along with female members, The Spoiler and Mary Marvel. Get writer Chuck Dixon and arter, artist uh, Tom Grummet together to do it, and DC's g set to go. That's a pretty good team, though. I like that. But, like, Mary Marvel just is so underutilized in DC Comics that... She would be great on a Teen Titans. She was a big part of that Justice Society run you liked, right? Yes. All right, Bob, you want to read the next one? Captain America kicking Batman's butt. Even though Batman will probably win in the fan balloting for the Marvel-DC crossover, Cap should beat Batman. Cap never loses in a fight and shouldn't, even to Batman. Hope it's a good brawl, though. It actually was. It takes place in a sewer. Oh. Next up here, Superman getting hitched to Lois Lane. We've been waiting for almost five years since Clark proposed to Lois. If Aunt May could die, then those two could finally get married. Hey, it's the American way. Man, he got the ring on her after 50 years. Give him a break. That's <laughs> <laughs> five more years. Okay. A good comic book-based movie. Enough of the Judge Dreads and Tank Girls. Give us a quality movie like the promised James Cameron Spider-Man. <laughs> James Cameron wouldn't make crap. 
So I, I take considerable umbrage at, at that little blurb there because Tank Girl and Judge Dredd are both awesome. Oh, wow. I like Judge Dredd. I am Ten- the law. <laughs> I, I am the law. Oh, man, it's so uh, Armand Asante, the three seashells. There's just, like, so much good stuff going. Oh, wait, no, that's That's Demolition Man, yeah. but they're basically the same movie. Yeah, <laughs> his output from that period all just blended into one film in my mind. It's true. But, but even, like, like Rob Schneider, who I don't particularly like in most movies, is actually good in Judge Dredd. He is. Bob. Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Calling Spidey Ben Riley is like calling Charlie Brown Joe Blow. It just doesn't sound right. With all the other things Spidey fans have to deal with, let's at least get Peter back as a name for the wall crawler. All right. Next here, creators having more commitment to a series. A creator should stick with a book and not roam around a lot or jump instantly to any X title with an opening. Fans crave consistency and continuity on any book, and that's exactly what creators should give them. So a page out of Todd McFarlane's book. Okay, the next one up says, Market Stability. We don't care how, but we want our comics. We want to be able to go to our local comic shop and pick up our favorite books. The fans only get hurt in the long run if publishers and distributors don't keep that in perspective. Get your business act together. Next, we have more 99-cent books. With all the price hikes of late, ain't it cool that Marvel is keeping some prices low with a couple of books? Let's hope more are on the way, and other publishers follow suit. Spoiler alert, they won't. They don't. <laughs> yep, no such luck. <laughs> Next year, creators focusing on the comics. Comics have become secondary with creators' current attitude of, I'll do comics, and then a video game, and toys, and movies, and cartoons, and a toilet seat. They should never forget the comic book fans that made them successful in the first place. Yeah, but they don't, because that's why they go to Image. So they can... That's not where you make the money. It's yeah. not in the comics, yeah. And last but not least, more self-contained stories. I agree with this 100%. I don't need a 50-issue overarching thing. Give me a five-issue miniseries, I'd be thrilled. Like those of untold tales of Spider-Man, Stray Bullets, and Astro City, the massive hyped crossover story has taken over the industry. New fans just can't come on in to comics anymore. They gotta wade through multi-issue and multi-title stories. Well, unfortunately, that ain't gonna change for a long time there, buddy. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of interesting what they wanted. Maybe, you know, there was a a wish fulfillment on some of those things, but not many, and uh, yeah. So, there you go, guys. What an interesting year-end perspective. We covered a lot of ground here. And uh, thank you, Bob, for coming back. This was fun, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Where can people find you online if they want to get connected? If you want to get in touch with me and talk, comics you should check out on instagram i actually run a spider-man action figure comic series which uh, my handle is uh spectacular underscore spider gram Oh, cool. Yeah, so take a look at that. It's a it's a comic that I started doing with my action figure collection three years ago now. What's the what's the latest storyline? It's one continuing narrative. Oh, nice. In the post that went up today, I have Moon Knight, Night Thrasher. Wow. uh, Yeah. Daredevil, Elektra, Jessica Jones and Kane in his uh, Scarlet Spider costume. And they are escaping, uh, ideally escaping from the lair of Dr. Doom. And that's, Wild. That's, that's, a, that's a super that's a super simplified explanation of what's going on. <laughs> 
So dig in deep, guys. Get over there. Cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, well, that's something... cool. This is neat. Yeah. I'm, I'm checking it right now. Very cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, something that I just kind of started doing randomly, and then found that it was a really fun creative outlet, and kept doing it. I'm I'm a fan. I'm in. I'm following now. There you go. Look at that. Sweet. All right. Well, and of course you can stay connected with us on Instagram as well. It's wizards underscore comics on Twitter at wizards comics. And, uh, the show's just going to keep on rolling. Like I said, you got a lot to look forward to a bonus episode talking about bad girls. I know the spawn special is on the horizon. Plus we got plenty more main episodes, mini episodes. We're trying to give you a whole variety of content. So these are good times to be a comic book fan. Like I say, if you want to find me opening up packs of amalgam, go subscribe on the retro network to their trn tv youtube channel there's a lot of fun nostalgic stuff to be had there as well and of course give us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you can retweet share because the universe continues to grow here at wizards and we're finding all sorts of cool people like yourselves who love the 90s they love the comic book world but until next time keep your books back in order of the Retro Network.